Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. This year, in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the Engendered Collective hosted a series of community conversations to bring greater awareness to domestic abuse and gender-based violence. Today's conversation deals with the intersection of sexism, racism, rape culture, and policing. Welcome, everybody. My name is Terry Yuan, and I'm the founder of the Engendered Collective. And today we're going to be having a community conversation on domestic abuse and police violence. Uh, We're happy to have three guests to talk about this issue. I'm a survivor. I'm an intersectional feminist, and I am also an advocate to end gender-based violence, systemic sexism, uh, and all forms of sexist oppression. And that's why I founded the Engendered Collective, which is a community of survivors, advocates, and pro-feminist allies to come together in community advocacy and learning. And so the three pillars that we have for our work is number one, uh, we engage in in knowledge building and knowledge sharing. Uh, So we have a weekly podcast called Engendered. This community conversation, as well as the other ones that we have scheduled for October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month is also part of that. We have a platform where members can engage and share and ask questions. The second pillar is we engage in community care and community healing. So we have weekly survivors offering support groups that are based off of the feminist consciousness raising classes and workshops from the Battered Women's Movement. And we also uh, engage in advocacy to end sexism and to increase accountability around sexist oppression, violence, and exploitation. Um, So there's a working group that we have comprised of international members who are working on coercive control. That's what the Engender Collective is about. Now, just to sort of frame the expectations for this conversation and future ones, what these community conversations are is an opportunity, hopefully, for survivors and advocates, practitioners, researchers, everybody who's working the space and cares about the issue to come together, share experiences, be a source of inspiration and hopefully learning. They are not definitive in the answers that we offer. Um, what I say today, and I, I, I might be very you know, strongly an advocate for or against a particular position, I'm open to change and learning. Um, and so it is not a place where we are um, setting rules and agendas for how things should be in a you know f- final way. So please please keep that in mind. The three speak- speakers and panelists we have today are Effie Zarabi, uh, Heather McWilliam, and Annette Chesum. So I'm going to give everybody a brief opportunity to just introduce themselves directly. So we're going to start with Effie. Hi. Um, so my name is Effie Zarabi. Uh, thank you for having me. I've been a police officer since 2008. I was hired um, when I was 27 years old and I worked in the same division from 2008 or 2009, um, May until 2018 when I went off sick. I worked in the same division the entire time and throughout the years, I came to realize that policing has a serious systemic sexual abuse problem and racism problem. 
you know, it's uh, it was a it's, it was a tough ten years to be in that environment. And you know, every time we spoke up, and every time myself and other officer colleagues brought these issues forward, um, we were told the same thing over and over again. That you know, think about the ramifications of your career, think about your, your future, these people you work with. So there was always that fear of of reporting stuff, um, and that was one of the reasons why women don't feel police women don't feel safe is that we know that there is very little avenue if any for us to get support um, when we come forward so in 2018 i filed a human rights complaint and um, i've been speaking basically publicly and i've been um, you know meeting other women in policing across canada and in other uh, walks of life other careers going through the same issues so I've been very fortunate to meet some amazing women and um, so we can, you know, help each other get through this and and hopefully help make change and uh, demand for change. Thank you, Effie. And next is Heather, please. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me. I'm also a police officer. I work at the same organization that Effie uh, works at, which is uh, in Toronto for the police service there. I joined policing in 2004. I worked for the National Police Force for the RCMP originally, and then continued my career mostly with the Toronto Police Service. And I've been a police officer for 15 years. In uh, 2014, I left my service and went on a medical leave um, due to the um, toxic workplace and experiences that I had from colleagues and supervisors in my workplace throughout my career. And due to the um, experiences that I had prior to leaving work and afterwards, I filed a human rights complaint that I fought um, alongside with very experienced lawyers um, with regards to sexual harassment, sexual abuse in the workplace uh, and systemic toxic uh, workplace uh, in policing for women. And recently after six years uh, of just in June this year, we won the case of uh, systemic sexual abuse in the workplace. And so there was changes implemented and um, there was a lot of awareness brought through that decision. I worked in different um, units within the organization. I had experience in homicide and drug squad and in the intelligence bureau. And um, with all of that experience and all of the um, other women that I saw going through similar abuse, um, I decided um, to continue my career uh, now uh, as an advocate for women's rights and an ally to humanity for others to help make a difference in other people's lives so that we can all collectively have a better tomorrow. Thank you, Heather. And finally, Nanette. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Nanette Cheesum, and I live in Colorado. And in 2015, I began a relationship with a law enforcement officer. And it was a relationship that was filled with emotional, psychological, and verbal abuse. And after I reported him to his chief of police, I was able to finally begin the healing process. Part of that healing process involved learning as much as I can about police culture speaking with law enforcement about police culture and officer-involved domestic violence awareness, and researching everything I possibly could about domestic violence and speaking to advocates, survivors, etc. That started me on a journey of deciding that I'm not going to be silent and I'm going to speak out. 
And that's what I do now. In addition to a corporate job, a day-to-day job career that I have, I am a public speaker and I educate advocates, law enforcement, and the general public about officer-involved domestic violence with an emphasis also on the verbal and psychological tactics that my perpetrator used on me and the tactics that abusers use in general. So here we are. And thank you, Terry, for giving all of us this opportunity to speak today. Thank you, Nanette. So we're going to get started with just framing the problem. I don't know how many of us in this conversation are aware of this, but I first became introduced to this problem when I intro- when I interviewed Rosara Torres-Thomas for the podcast, and I was looking into the statistics around domestic abuse amongst law enforcement. And apparently law enforcement is the uh, sector with the highest rates of domestic violence. There was a study in 1991 by Arizona State University that estimated based on it, based on its results that at least 40% of the uh, law enforcement um, engages in domestic abuse. And this was based on questions where the term uh, violence or behaving violently wasn't even defined. And so if we extend the definition of abuse to beyond just the physical incident model, it's likely that it's much higher than 40%. So I wanna start with Nanette in terms of your own personal experience Uh, You were involved with an officer in an officer-involved domestic violence relationship. Uh, Can you tell us briefly some of the ways in which he engaged in abusive behavior? Because most of it, as you explained in our podcast interview, was not physical. Correct. Some of the tactics that he used on me were a commanding tone of voice, also a commanding presence, and that was exhibited through his body language, much like law enforcement officers are trained to have a commanding presence when they're on scene to investigate an incident. uh, He brought that tactic home. Some of the other behaviors that he engaged in were, were controlling behaviors, coercive control. And a few examples of that would be early on in the relationship, trying to gauge my boundaries. So that would be things like I drink almond milk and not dairy milk. So he was very vocal at, at, at voicing his displeasure at me drinking dairy milk and trying to get me to switch or almond milk and trying to get me to switch to dairy milk. Um, examples like I didn't load the dishwasher correctly. I didn't hang my bathroom towels correctly. I wasn't very good at giving directions. He nitpicked everything that I did. Some of the other behaviors that he exhibited is blaming others for a lot of the problems that he experienced during the course of his life. And I picked up on that and realized that there's one common denominator in in all of this, and, and that was him. Some of the other behaviors that he used were gaslighting behaviors. And for those of us joining today who don't understand what gaslighting it is, it is distorting. It was distorting my perception of reality. So if I said the sky was blue, he would have a way of manipulating that for me to look up at the sky and say, well, yeah, maybe, maybe the sky isn't blue. Maybe it's another color. And, and for those of you who have been in a a relationship filled with gaslighting, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, eventually he did start to uh, escalate 
and exhibit some uh, some physical traits that that are physical harm that concerned me, such as pounding his fists on a steering wheel, for example, which concerned me. So just a lot of coercive control, a lot of uh, commanding tone and uh, blame and trying to switch situations back onto me to make me feel like things were my fault when they were really, truly his doing. So in the context of a regular relationship, many people might interpret these behaviors as quote unquote harmless. And obviously in the, we who are advocates of um, reframing domestic abuse as course of control in a non-physical incident only model perspective, we understand that that's not the case. But with this additional layer of knowing that your partner was a police officer and carried a gun, what was that like in terms of your, the impact on you and the kinds of thoughts and self-policing behaviors that you might have prescribed as a way to manage the situation? Well, in the very beginning, uh, I speak about this whenever I give a presentation. I initially placed a lot of trust in him because he was a law enforcement officer when, when he told me in the beginning that he was a law enforcement officer. And so I think as a result of that, I kind of let my guard down a little bit uh, because he was a law enforcement officer. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a strange feeling when you're being perpetrated against, but you don't realize you're being perpetrated against. And it's especially unnerving when it's a law enforcement officer because they do have access to a weapon. And, you know, there's that intimidation factor, you know, who am I going to talk to? Who's going to believe me? Who can I reach out to? If the incident, if any incidents uh, needed to be reported that were in his, his town, his, his neck of the woods, who's going to believe me? It's a small rural community. So anyone that's going to show up most likely is going to be who he leads on his force. He was the second in command at this particular agency. So who's going to believe me? So that was a fear factor. Another piece that is always intimidating is if you do need to leave, if you want to leave, if you want to end the relationship, if you want to escape, you know, law enforcement officers have access to a lot of information, uh, tra traceable information. So that was also a concern, especially after the relationship ended. I don't personally believe that he was stalking me, but I'll never know because I'll, I'll never know because he's that good at deceit and, and deflection and whatnot. So it adds another layer of worry when your perpetrator is actually in law enforcement. Thank you, Nanette. So that's just the interpersonal setting. Um, let's talk about the institutional setting. Effie, when you and I spoke about the experiences that you had, they were initially things that you discovered through your partner and through a uh, group chat that he was a part of. So can you talk about that and what, what it was that he discovered and shared with you? My fiance works on the same shift and the same station um, downtown with me. He was part of a group chat and like group chats are a common thing with 
officers. And mostly it's like a very clicky thing. So, you know, officers do it all the time. And um, I wasn't part of this group chat, the specific group chat. Um, my fiance was part of it. And I don't know, most people that have been on group chats would know that a lot of the conversations you don't see because you're either busy and it's always people talking. So one day he came to me and said, there's a group chat that you know about, but this is, this is what they're saying about you. So he showed me the messages that, that was discussed between these 14 officers. Um, about myself. And so it was really, it was so disheartening to see that the people I worked with and that known for years, and, you know, you, you go to some other weddings, you see their kids are born and they're, you know, like, it's like a family thing, right? Like you, you feel like you're part of the team and to see the way they were speaking about myself and my colleagues and just members of the public and the things they were sharing amongst each other and posting, it was very, very disheartening for me to see. And it was very alarming because, you know, when you see that the group of guys that you work with are, are the way they speak, it really affects your the way you, you see them and how they treat the public. And so that's, that was a hard thing for me to, to realize that I was working with these guys and this is how they were really treating us and, and everybody else. Thank you. And Heather, your experience, you, talk, you shared with me your experience around how your colleagues' um, behavior not just towards one another and to, to the women in the uh, department were, but also how it was in, indicative based on their response to domestic violence and sexual assault uh, incidents. And so how they're responding to the public um, was in, in your words, you know, something that the public would be shocked about. So can you describe some of the things that, um, your fellow officers would say or do when responding to sexual assault and gender-based crimes? So, um, and for one example, uh, or a few examples, um, I was a detective constable in the detective's office at the time, and I was working with male supervisors. And when there was sexual assaults investigations that were being conducted, we would conduct interviews with the sexual assault victims and their survivors. And afterwards, after the interviews, there would be comments made as to whether or not the victim or the survivor was telling the truth. And the only part of the investigation that had commenced at this point was the interview. So there had been no evidence collected. There had been no other parts of the investigation that corroborate someone's integrity and whether or not someone ha something happened had not been conducted. And they were making comments that she, they were, the comments were, she had fake breasts, she probably deserved it, or she was asking for it. Or the comment was, you know, I don't believe her right off the hop, just because they didn't believe her from whatever symptoms that they were um, showing at that time that they felt that they didn't believe her, likely didn't have the background and the experience and the knowledge as to what symptoms present trauma and what do not. And so, you know, comments when a female would come in to make a report, one of my abusers stepped up to me and was commenting on her physical appearance and what he liked about her physical appearance. And I remember another situation where there was a young a young survivor speaking about her experience about sexual assault. And um, my supervisor had went back into the room and 
basically read her her rights and cautioned her. Um, something that we're trained not to do is um, if they're making false allegations that they would be charged. So my experiences, and as I was going through my own experience of, of sexual harassment and I was sexually assaulted by one of my bosses, the response was um, these women weren't to be believed. They were called names, um, derogatory names. And there's also um, a checklist after an interview is conducted through in Canada called ByClass that has to be submitted so that we can track known or unknown suspects in sexual abuse or sexual assault. And they would complain about having to fill this report out. So there was a lack of motivation to want to pursue, conduct these investigations. All of it, surrounding all of it, was so concerning on a, a larger scale than just that, that one person that we spoke to. How many times has this happened to someone when they don't even know, when they've come to us with courage to ask for help, and this is the response they're getting behind closed doors with police officers not understanding what trauma is for sexual abuse and how that affects people versus different other kinds of, of abuse or different other kinds of harm that's conducted that they respond to, that this was less than important than other offenses. So you, you mentioned trauma. That's something that's been covered very broadly in the media. For example, Unbelievable is a... Um, docudrama, I guess, on Netflix um, about um, a serial rapist. And it shows very clearly how women are not only disbelieved, but that they're penalized for potentially, in the view of law enforcement, um, making false reports. And so the, the, there's a common argument that if only police officers or if only XYZ groups of people were trained, they would do better. So are there instances, I'll pose this to you know, um, all of our panelists, are there instances where you know that training has led to better outcomes? Um, that you know, if they understood trauma better, that they would be more empathetic, for example, or at least not make you know, jump to this stereotype. So any of our panelists, um, feel free to, to answer this. I'll speak just so briefly about it. Just in my own experience, having going gone through what I've gone through with my mental health and um, post-traumatic stress and all of the other things that went along with that is that the more I personally learned about trauma, the more I was in mental health, the more I was able to understand others' mental health and their trauma and their symptoms and their experiences and what affects them on a daily basis and what they're presenting to me and how it's being um, perceived by others. And so just through my own experience, because I know that through policing, we aren't, I wasn't trained to the degree that we should be trained with regards to uh, mental health and how it affects someone and um, what that truly looks like. I mean, our experience as police officers has a lot to do with physical training rather than mental health training. Okay. Uh, would anybody else like to answer before we continue? I agree with Heather on that point. Um, the more you, you educate and train people, the more um, they're able to, to deal with issues uh, when they're facing those circumstances. So training and, and education has to continue. 
it's very important that we continue because times are changing. People, people are changing ideas. It's always changing. So we have to continue training. But there's also the aspect of transparency and accountability that's very important that goes hand in hand because at the end of the day, there are people that are not that are doing things on purpose, that are causing harm on purpose. And so if you're not holding anyone accountable and if you're not doing it transparency for everyone to see the consequences on these actions, then that's the, then we're faced with just training after training and nothing changes. Okay, so to go on to the next part, so that let's, let's talk about the responses to each of your experiences. Uh, Nanette, at some point, <laughs> You decided to um, break up with your partner and um, report. Uh, can you tell us about that experience? What was it like? What you were considering, weighing the pros and cons of, um, and what made you decide to actually, you know, move forward rather than keep quiet? Well, after the relationship ended in September of 2015, I, as I mentioned earlier, once it was relayed to me by a friend that what had been happening to me was considered domestic abuse. I was stunned and shocked. And I started researching as much as I could about domestic violence. And that led me to being curious about rates of domestic violence within law enforcement. So that set me on a whole other <laughs> whole other journey learning all I could. And as I began processing not only what had happened to me as far as the domestic abuse is concerned, but also started learning and understanding the high rates of DV within the law enforcement community. And hearing from other survivors of OIDV and a couple of of female officers, actually, who had experienced officer-involved domestic violence at the hand of their, their partners who were also in law enforcement, I really started to, to understand the totality of this problem. And as I mentioned earlier, I decided not to be silent. And so after about five or six months after the relationship ended, I, you know, had been to therapy. I was, you know, doing all that I could to heal and to move forward in my life. And I was stuck and I couldn't figure out why I was stuck and couldn't move forward. And I had actually just to vent had, had months ago started writing an email letter to his chief of police. And I had no intention of sending it at the time that I, that I wrote it. And I filed it away in my, in my email file and about five or six months of, you know, just being angry. At one point I got angry at what he had done to me. I pulled up that email that I had written to the chief, the draft, and I made a few revisions and I hit send. I did not wake up that morning deciding to hit send on that, on that email button. And I tell you what, I I refer to this whenever I speak, the minute I hit that send button, I, I felt the sense of relief and I felt empowerment. And to me, that was my justice. That was me holding him accountable. And when I hit the send button, I was happy. I was fine. Okay. And to my surprise and amazement about a week later, an investigator from a neighboring district attorney's office actually reached out to me. And asked me if I wanted to talk. And I said, yes, yes, I would like to talk. And I met with that investigator and spoke for an hour and a half. And he recorded me. And I prepped an incident list, I call it, of about 64 individual incidents of verbal and psychological abuse that he inflicted on me. And I left a copy behind for the investigator's file. And 
when that meeting was over, I felt this incredible sense of relief. I felt like the weight of the world had lifted off my shoulders. And for me personally, that is exactly what I needed to move forward. That did it, speaking to that investigator. And I remember driving back to work that morning and, and feeling relieved and feeling like this is over. This is it. That's what I needed. Was there any sense of fear that accompanied those other emotions? No, no, not at that point in time. I had already started to speak publicly about what he had been doing to me. And enough people in my personal world knew who he is. And any, any sense of fear that I would have felt flew by the wayside because I felt confident, I felt empowered, and I knew I was doing the right thing for me. Okay, okay. so that contrasts, obviously, um, for someone who actually works with their abuser or their harasser, um, and for those folks like Effie and Heather who had to go back to work and deal with it every day, different set of consequences. Um, so Effie, you shared that your fiance was the first person to introduce you to sort of the, the, the web of um, the ecosystem of male entitlement and sexist and misogynistic behavior, not just towards you know, the public, but obviously also towards their colleagues. Um, so how did that play out in terms of its impact on your fiance? Because he obviously, one could arguably call him a whistleblower by having, you know, by ha- by telling on his buddies. How did it impact him? Um, and then what subsequently happened when you reported? So when I reported in um, when I reported in 2018 September, um, that's when the, the report came out, and he was basically very, very well liked. He, he was an auxiliary officer before he got hired. He knew, he knew the officers. He got along with everybody, played hockey, and they loved him. Great guy. You know, he very lovable person. Um, as soon as my human rights report came out, within a few days, nobody talked to him at work. He was shunned. He was isolated. He was May he they called him a rat. They he wasn't he didn't even feel safe going to the bathroom by himself. He nobody talked to him. He wasn't invited to the Christmas party. And so for for people that hear this, it sounds like you know okay, it's not a big deal. You know you can get over it. You can get past it. But when you're in an environment where you depend on people, as a young officer, he has um, less time on than I do. He was very very badly affected by that um, to a point where he was having suicidal ideologies that I, I felt such fear of leaving him to go even to the grocery store. I was in so much fear of coming home and finding him, God forbid, like dead. And, you know, you hear other officers that are going through things and you hear other wives or girlfriends or grieving um, family members talk about, they didn't realize it, they didn't see it coming, but I saw that coming and it was scary. So as a police officer, as someone that's on the inside, it's that much more um, scarier because we know we've seen our, I have two friends of mine committed suicides and I I saw how things just unfolded over the years with their traumas and with their stress and with their abuse. So this was really alarming for me and it was so hard to see them treat him that way because he had nothing to do with anything other than just show me what was saying, what was being said behind my back, but the way they treated him, 
it was like a double betrayal for me. It was so much harder for me to deal with what he was going through um, than what I was going through, that the guilt was unbearable. And so all these factors play a huge, it's a huge part of the problem. Thank you. And could you talk a little bit more about um, the human rights tribunal that you brought your case to and its impact on you? Obviously, you were basically shouldering this double burden, feelings of how it was impacting him, as well as carrying your own grief and trauma around the experience. So what happened with the tribunal? Um, So they haven't assessed the case yet. This is two years later. I have spent over $60,000 out of pocket for for human rights tribunal that hasn't even started. I had to pay out of pocket for lawyers. I have been getting 75% of my salary. I'm not getting full full salary. Um, and most of that is going to lawyers fees and you know legal defense and stuff. And so they drag it out. They just waste time. They keep, and they have all the money in the world. They have taxpayers pocket uh, purse. They can just take out money and pay for big lawyers. And, you know, so this is like so many layers of issues that we have to deal with, you know, financially, mentally, family. My family is affected by this. My fiance's family is severely affected by this. And there seems to be nowhere to, for, for us to go for help. Thank you. Uh, so Heather, in your own experience, you talked about um, the lack of disciplinary action and um, this uh, trend in a way, if we want to call it that, of people who are in power, some of whom may have been even accused perpetrators for either moving them up or to different positions where they're still employed in policing and up meaning they're promoted. So not only is there not a negative consequence, but there's a positive consequence. So just to follow up on what Effie said, there's this financial cost. So can you talk about with regard to your case, why is it that there is this financial burden that the victim has to shoulder herself, rather, and then who is paying actually for the alleged perpetrator? So when I came forward and decided that I wanted to go ahead with the application for the Human Rights Tribunal, I had asked our association, our, our police association, which is like a union, and they had stated that they would not support me financially with regards to human rights. And so they have uh, experienced, you know, decades more than me in policing. They also have a history of family members that have also been in policing for, you know, decades before me as well. And so it was a choice that they had. And so they have this discretion that they can say yes or say no to where they decide to allocate the money with which the association provides support to. And so the officers mainly in our organization that get support are officers that have been charged criminally or they've been facing some sort of other workplace problems and not about female officer problems that that we're experiencing. So in the past, female officers have Um, You know, just prior to my experience and going forward, there's a female officer that was leaving the job and she, a lot of female officers take uh, non-disclosure agreements so that they financially cannot go through with the standing up for themselves without the, the support of the association. And so in my experience, after six years, my financial statement was 
you know, above $150,000 that I paid out of pocket. And, you know, that's the example of what it takes or what it took in my circumstances. There was 30 police officers that they put on the stand against me, uh, to which were not found to be credible. And I was. But again, that is the example of why women won't come forward is that this is what they're going to face because I had no support, you know, at all. Everyone was too fearful to speak up about the truth about it, fear of reprisal within the service. So just to, you know, go over is that we don't have the support. It's, you know, decades uh, of this culture flourishing in the way that they've liked to suppress women from being able to change the way that things are, the status quo. But um, a lot of the power and control comes from, you know, those that are at the top of our organization. And they did move people that were involved in my case to positions as to where they could have further power and control over my career, over the situation to further harm me. And these individuals who were moved up, they were involved in your case. And I'm guessing they're still in in those positions. There's no accountability still at this point for them. That's correct. Even after the Human Rights Tribunal, after I've been found credible, those that stayed in policing and didn't retire since the case are still in positions of power, are still in positions of control in which they have access uh, and have used against me my personal location and, and various other ways in which to intimidate me and my family. So actually recently there was a counselor within our city that's decided to start involving the city with regards to the accountability of the service since there has been zero accountability with regards to what's happened since the decisions come out. Yeah, and and I just want to highlight for uh, our attendees that in uh, the Rosara Torres Thomas episode, we actually shared some resources where there was an article about the incidence and prevalence of domestic violence amongst police officers, amongst law enforcement. And the article highlights that the lack of disciplinary measures is so severe that there are so many other disciplinary problems that police officers do actually get citations for and negative consequences for that fall above Uh, domestic violence, and they include drug use, theft, embezzlement in other words, false statements or perjury, uh, assault, and all of those actually have a higher incident of negative outcomes than domestic violence, which falls below all of that, which I think is very indicative of how women and and sexual assault and sexual violations um, are viewed in this culture. Um, so let's talk about some of these structural impediments to accountability that exists. One of them is data. I think, you know, Effie talked about the lack of transparency. Part of the reason that there's a lack of transparency is the intersection of what normally exists in domestic violence, which is the fear of reporting. We all know that when there is an experience of domestic abuse or coercive control, that there's very low rates of reporting because of what 
the potential consequences are of engaging in criminal justice and all the other systems that you might have to engage in. But there is also another complication in data, which is apparently that in the U.S. at least in 1996, there was an amendment to a federal law that prohibits anyone convicted of a misdemeanor domestic abuse from owning a gun. And so this amendment is very valuable, obviously, for women who aren't in relationships with partners with guns. But if your partner is a police officer who can't use a gun to go to work, then obviously, if you report your partner or if you report um, anyone in that situation who has to use a gun for work, there's going to be greater risk of retaliation. And if you're in the relationship itself, there might be economic considerations around your partner not being able to provide for the family. So that's one reason. But I want to go back to Heather and Effie with regard to the the role of unions as gatekeepers. Effie, you talked about the cost of trying to achieve accountability I'd love for you to delve into more the cost of just trying to be healthy and stay and be employed still and what the role the union plays in, if at all, in advocating for your interests as a victim over the perpetrators. So personally, I have gotten zero support from the union. And um, from the moment I, I came forward with the, my report, I had notified my union, the president, too. I included him in the email and I told them the situation and I asked them for help. And over and over again, there was no help. They, they just don't care to help women. The union board is all men, all white men. There's one woman, I believe she's a civilian, but it's not enough. We don't have enough women on the union boards. We don't have enough. We don't have any women looking after our interests. Um, sexual violence is not, sexual violence is not um, a priority for them, frankly. So when I, the last thing I said to my, to my union was, I need help. I, I cannot pay my bills, pay my mortgage, pay my lawyers and, and keep on top of everything. This is, this is, this is too much for me. And uh, the response was just go to human rights, just go to human rights. And, and, uh, you know, it's the same complaint. So we don't want to, you know, do a double thing. And so that's the last thing they said to me. And they know that human rights tribunal takes years. They know, like Heather McWilliams said, you know, seven years later, all these officers lied. All these officers were being dishonest. And the effect that has on on our mental health is so severe. And just so that just before all that, you know that the union doesn't have any support for women. So we have that much more obstacles in front of us. And personally, and my colleagues who were forced to resign last year with non-disclosure agreements, none of us got help from our union, not one of us. And right now you're on leave, isn't that right? Right now I'm off sick. I've been diagnosed with PTSD. So, you know, and it's been a fight. It's been a fight. We are constantly fighting. We're constantly trying to get uh, help from our, our organization and they expect you to recover and they expect you to come back to work. And, you know, they, they, they don't, they, it's all this lip service and, and uh, all these things, they, you know, pictures they take and all the ribbons and the pink shirts they wear, but it's all a facade. There's no help. And it's, it's very, it's a very difficult place to work and it's a very difficult situation to be in. So Heather, you had talked about in terms of the institutional gatekeepers in your experience, uh, I recall the incident with the nurse who basically blamed you for not knowing better that, of course, this was something you were going to experience and and reinforcing the culture 
of misogyny. Can you talk about what happened with that nurse? So after I went off work and I was now speaking to a doctor with regards to what I had experienced, she had advised that it was in my best interest for my health to not attend the workplace. And so at this time, my workplace was coming to my house. So there was police officers coming to my home. Even one of my abusers had been sent to my home, a direct supervisors to check on me. And I was already off work with my doctor. There was a medical note sent in. Everyone had the information that needed to have it, but they insisted on coming to my home and harassing me. And then they continued to send letters in the mail ordering me to the medical bureau at headquarters. And if I didn't attend, I would be disciplined. I also was told by my union, uh, they would have uh, my benefits and my pay cut off if I did not attend. So going against my doctor's order. And this was when my post-traumatic stress was simply at its worst, when I needed support most. They did not give it to me. And I was ordered under our policies and procedures, I have to speak to the nurse at least. So I was speaking to the nurse And when I was speaking to the nurse, the nurse told me that uh, this was a man's world. I should have known this when I joined policing. What else did I expect? And that if I didn't listen to her, her bosses were going to make my life worse. And so when we had the hearing, this nurse had left the service and they could no longer find her to be able to testify regarding this information. And no one's been held accountable for the words that she had said. When I needed support most, when my mental health was at its, its point of needing that, those words of encouragement to get better, they weren't there. She asked me, what else was I going to do with my life? I was too young not to work. And so she put all the blame on me and not on the situation as to what it was. Okay. For, for those of uh, the audience who isn't really, who, who hasn't heard of the different cases in the public around being uh, how there's a law that allows police officers to hold someone in custody. And if you engage in rape or sexual assault, as long as the police officer says that there is consent, it's legal. Believe it or not, in many, many states across the country in the U.S., at least 30 states, that is the case. So it's not surprising that when you have that law still on the books, that within the culture itself, you're going to be experiencing, you know, uh, people who are the nurse that you experienced, gatekeepers of that culture. I just want to add that I think she was being actually, she was being intimidated by my supervisors, by the ones in power that were named in this complaint. We don't have those laws here. So I really do believe that she was being intimidated, that possibly she was anyways. Okay. Speaking of intimidation, you know, regarding officer-involved domestic violence victims, it's not unusual at all when there's an incident and officers show up on scene. It's not abnormal at all for an officer to pull a victim aside and say, you know, if you move forward with this, if you if charges are pressed, if we move forward with this, he's going to lose his pension. He's going to lose his paycheck. He's going to lose his weapon. So how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to support your kids? So there is intimidation that happens on scene with many OIDV victims. And that is why a lot of victims don't move forward, that fear and that intimidation piece. And it's a way of silencing women, just like the NDAs. It's a way of silencing women so we don't speak out. And and I know for a fact that those same 
insinuations are also made when officers are responding to domestic abuse incidents and the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator is not a police officer. Those officers are still going to be asking, "What? how are you going to support yourself? Who's going to pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so this is a great segue into some of the solutions that have been offered in, in um, the domestic violence community, as well as in the police reform community. And one of them is, there was an article in Ms. Magazine that uh, stated that what part of what we need in policing to address the fight to end domestic violence is gender parity. So in other words, the more women we have in police um, policing, the better it will be. So, you know, Effie was talking about Effie both and and Heather, how their experience to help them be more empathetic and better understand symptoms of trauma um, in the people that they are responding to. But Nanette, I want to ask you, this concept of more women um, has shown up in a book by an Australian journalist named Jess Hill, who we also had on the podcast episode. And she wrote a book that's just been re-released in the U.S. called See What You Made Me Do. And in that book, she talks about this idea of, in the global South, women's police stations. So instead of treating domestic violence and domestic abuse as something that needs to have a remedy where there's an arrest potentially and a conviction that the goal is providing signals of accountability in some ways and helping to to have an ongoing mechanism for developing or enhancing a survivor safety plan. So the survivor basically has a relationship with the women police officers who check on them regularly and have a relationship and can kind of, you know, signal literally or, or figuratively to the perpetrator who might still live in that home, I have an eye on you. Uh, so if you were in a situation where you were living with someone or in a relationship still with a, an officer is that something that would help you be more inclined to want to reach out and look to law enforcement for help? I think initially it would feel like a safe place, uh, a trusting place, a trusting relationship. And it's an interesting model. It's an interesting concept. I would love to see more, more women get involved in the law enforcement profession. I think there are so many benefits to that in many ways in, in all communities. At the end of the day, you know, beyond that, that one-on-one relationship with that female law enforcement officer, moving forward through the legal system, how is that relationship it's beneficial, but how is that relationship going to carry forth and be beneficial to me getting through the legal system and being able to trust that legal system beyond my relationship with that female law enforcement officer? And I certainly think that it's easier to speak to a female law enforcement officer when it's domestic violence, rape, sexual assault. I certainly think that that is a more comforting talk to have rather than speaking one-on-one with a male detective or a male officer. Okay, thank you. So I'd like to address another policy proposal that I'm sure many of us have read about, uh, especially post-George Floyd and the strengthening of the Black Lives Matter movement. There's this term that has been very prominent in the media called, quote-unquote, defund the police. 
I know that Effie has has shared with me she'd rather the term be reform the police. So either way, uh, just to give some background for the um, attendees, defund the police or reform the police movement is about reallocating direct policing resources to strengthening in particular communities of color who have been over-policed. And so it may include allocating resources so that you're ending the presence of police in schools, but increasing monies for social workers and other kinds of crisis services or peer services to be those first responders when there are incidents of crises that might have a mental health consideration or behavioral consideration. There's also the possibility that the reduction in money might help to end enforcement of minor offenses. People have suggested legalizing marijuana possession and distribution, for example. So these are just a few of the high-level ideas that have come out of Defund the Police And I want to turn to Heather now with regard to your court outcome, which came out in June. If you can talk about with regard to societal change and policy, if any of the outcomes that you got from your case have been things that you would recommend in addition to the defund the police options, or if you have objections or additions to make with regard to how you feel um, those might be modified. Sure. I'll just share with you what the um, the orders were from the tribunal. It was develop a human rights strategy, retain an external expert on policing and human rights to conduct additional training for supervisors specifically, provide annual training for all officers on sexual harassment, human rights, and poison work environments, track and report on internal human rights complaints, as this had not been done in the past. So in my experience through this hearing of six years, Um, You know, I had the opportunity to look outside of the organization itself and really understand and see a different perspective as to where we are failing ourselves and the public. And so um, in my experience is that, you know, just even listening to the testimony of the officers on the stand was that they really had no idea, some of them, that our workplace was a poisoned working place. Uh, workplace and what sexual harassment was, they had become so used to the culture and the and the experiences that they were having that it had been normalized. So the leaders at the top that have also gone through this culture also have been normalized to the culture and don't have that outside perspective as to what is truly needed to affect change within internally and externally for the public. And, and it's not about ego. It's not about saying you don't know how to police or make change or differences in people's lives. It's about bringing in the experts who understand problems, both individually and collectively as a society as a whole for our health and well-being. You know, we're going to turn now to the question and answers by the audience. And I'm going to just follow up with a question with Effie. A listener previously asked, why did you, you know, go into policing? And I'd like to um, have you share with our attendees what your personal reason was and what you knew about it before you started. So um, I come from a country where I grew up in war and and um, we left when I was young and we came to Canada. 
with my parents and my siblings. And I saw the struggles my mom was going through as an immigrant. I saw the hardship that we were going through. And I saw what a strong woman she was. And she was so inspiring and she was so amazing and so strong. And she always had the morals. She had the good morals to do the right thing. And she taught us the same. So those are some of the things that I relate to policing is that those characters and those those qualities. And so when my mom passed away, I was I was 19 years old. And um, before she passed away, I always talked to her about me wanting to be a police officer. And she was always worried about the safety aspect, you know, like, I don't want you to get hurt and all that. After she passed away, I decided to follow my dreams. And I wanted to make her proud. So I became a police officer. You know, I wanted to I wanted to be a strong woman. I wanted to to help other women. I wanted to help victims, domestic violence victims, children that are being sexually abused. I wanted to do so much for the community. And, you know, there's nobody can really tell you what's going to happen when you go into policing. Nobody can warn you about this. And, you know, you can't say to somebody, well, why don't you just leave? It took so much for me to become a police officer. I dedicated so much to it. I love it so much that for me, walking away is not an option. If I were to walk away, I'm failing everybody. I'm failing my colleagues. I'm failing women, the public, you know, and it's just it will just continue. It's not going to stop if we walk away. If every woman walks away who's facing these issues, then it's just going to continue and it's going to affect the public. And it's going to affect my communities, my family, my future. So that's one of the reasons why I, I came forward, uh, knowing that it could possibly end my career. But I didn't want to leave. If I was going to leave, I didn't want to leave it worse, the, worse than the way I found it. So that's what it meant to me to be a police officer. Right. And I want to add, you know, a lot of people who are in the prison abolition and um, on the extreme end of the defund the police movement, where they really do want to eliminate a carceral state and they want to eliminate policing, their arguments that we don't need a criminal justice system if uh, we have resources, you know, invested into helping communities economically thrive. Uh, and grow is that we can't trust policing because of its racist manifestations. Well, the argument's also been made about the healthcare system. We had an interview recently with um, an author, Jennifer Block, and, and journalist who talked about the healthcare disparities between men and women, but also, of course, between women and women of color being you know negatively impacted. And if that system also has had terrible abuses perpetrated by doctors against Black Americans and Black women. Nobody's saying, hey, let's defund the healthcare sector, right? We want to reform it. And so I think that there's room for having this conversation and fixing what isn't working. And so to that, let's turn to the questions. Michelle, I've asked Michelle to sort of aggregate the questions and certain themes so maybe if you have a question that we can give towards Nanette, feel free to ask it. Another question that has come up is around accountability with police officers and how are they held accountable for their actions? So can I ask uh, Nanette, you know, your experience actually I think is so unusual. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's it's such the exception and not the rule. Was there anything in particular? What did you do differently? Was it the people that were involved? How was it that you were able to get an outcome where you're actually having conversations with the police officers, they did an investigation, and there was a remedy that's 
I don't know if you find it satisfactory, but at least wasn't hopefully unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, for me, I was vindicated and I felt like in my case, justice was served. He did not physically harm me. Um, What he did was course of control, which in the United States of America is not a criminally punishable offense, the verbal and the psychological piece. So just having that audience with an investigator via the chief of police was justice enough for me. Everyone's version of justice and accountability is different when it comes to domestic violence. And so we need to respect that of each individual survivor. And it is not unusual for officers to not be legally held accountable. And that is surprising to a lot of people in the general public who don't understand what happens behind the scenes, that they don't understand when unions get involved, how they they protect, for a lack of a better word, a lot of these officers who are accused, um, and not just domestic violence or sexual assault, but embezzlement, et cetera. There was a case recently with LAPD where a union actually decided not to back up an officer who was accused of fondling a dead body in a morgue. He was caught on camera. His own police, his camera, his body cam caught it. And the union, that's one of the rare cases where a union has decided, we're not going to help you. We're not going to back you. We're not going to support you. Uh, But it's not unusual, like I said, for intimidation tactics to be employed so that survivors back off. It's not unusual because it is a patriarchal institution uh, systemically within law enforcement for women to not be believed, for women to be stood down, for accountability to not be achieved. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's extremely rare. It has to be an extremely awful case for a perpetrator to be held accountable in, in the legal system and within law enforcement. And for OIDV, it's extremely rare. So yes, my, my situation was, was rare. I think that it's because, uh, in part, because I ran into the right chief of police, uh, who was his boss. And uh, he's, he's, he's young, he's younger. So I think that he has probably a different perspective. He hasn't been in the business for, you know, 30, 40 years, and has that, that ingrained mentality. He was a younger chief of police. I also think, Looking back, I intuitively felt during the relationship that there were other things going on with him within that department. Uh, He was very paranoid. Uh, He was always paranoid that he was going to get fired. Uh, He would complain to me that a lot of his officers didn't like him. And so what I think my piece, my complaint was just a tiny piece of other things that were happening in that department concerning him. I would not be surprised if he had a file full of of citizen complaints because he would tell me, you know, a citizen called because he was too gruff, too mean to to a citizen, and they took offense to that. So there were other things going on with him. And I think that's ultimately what that was his demise. Um, He's no longer with that department, by the way. He separated from that department in July of 2017. And um, I, I believe that there were other things going on with him. So if I may, it sounds like one of the suggestions that you have and um, the other panelists have have offered as well is that accountability requires that people speak up. And the more people who speak up, the more, quote unquote, evidence or documentation there is against someone that will make it hard and data that will make it hard for people in power to ignore. Does that sound right? Right. And I never want to force anyone to report that's an individual decision and safety always has to be the first priority. But that's exactly true. More people have to speak up. 
And that's the only way we're going to get things stuck, put in files. That's the only way we're going to create awareness. That's the only way we're going to be, we have to demand change. We have to Mm -hmm. demand it. Mm -hmm. We can't be nice anymore about it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, next question, please, Michelle. Right along with talking about the unions, uh, a question that came up was, what are some of the steps or the first steps? in changing that dynamic with the powers that union have with, uh, as it regards to misogyny. So Heather or Effie, you probably know about more about this, uh, either of you. Well, there is a decision right now in the Supreme Court. It's uh, Weber versus uh, Toronto Hydro. This decision was in 1995. And basically, if you have a union, it says you have to go to a union. You have to go to tribunal. You have to go through them, file a grievance, whatever you have to do, it has to be through the union. So we cannot go to court if we were sexually assaulted. We have to go through the union and file a grievance and file all the other stuff. And that's the problem. That's what's missing is that we are being, our complaints are, are being taken apart at the, at the initial stages. It's not an unbiased investigation. So, you know, we have that extra obstacle in front of us. Okay. So this, just to, as a reminder to the attendees, Effie and Heather are based in Canada, but certainly in the U.S., there are, I would guess, state-specific and union-specific rules with regard to how these kinds of complaints would be uh, responded to. And I, I wanted to give a, an, uh, an update from 2018, at least in New York City, there is an organization that is like a hybrid a government entity, independent entity called the New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board. And it wasn't until 2018 that they started investigating complaints of sexual assault uh, and harassment by officers, which previously was being referred by the board to the Internal Affairs Bureau. So it's, you know, what both I've heard Effie and Heather say, you can't have people policing themselves. (laughs) You need to have independent authority. Okay, Heather, would you like to add anything to what Effie said? Yeah, I think the option is if the association isn't being compliant, our option is to go to the labor board and to make a complaint about them not assisting us. And so I think the bigger picture here is that, um, you know, for decades, this is how how they did it. This is how they felt was the best way to protect the majority of their members, of their male members. But the culture's changed and more officers don't want to work in a culture that is negative. And so eventually the cycle will have to come to a full circle where um, the majority of officers have had enough of this negative culture and that they, the associations can see that standing behind good officers in the end will be the best practice, um, you know, for less work for them. It might be hard now, but in the end, doing what's right now will eventually get easier. Okay, thank you. So in the remaining time, I would like to have each of the panelists give some final thoughts. And maybe what we could do is, Michelle, if you can give some high level questions that remain that haven't been answered, Um, And they can maybe choose to answer one of them in their remaining thoughts. And what I'd like to do also is um, invite Effie and Heather to be on the podcast. And so any question that has not been asked already, uh, we're happy to ask them during our interviews uh, in the podcast. And you can look for that uh, in an upcoming episode. So Michelle, if you can just 
read out loud the remaining questions or themes, and then we'll have each of the panelists close. So uh, one has to do, one thought has to do around transformative models of justice. Uh, what are your thoughts on transformative models of justice, specifically for sexual and domestic violence? Do you think that divesting sexual violence and domestic violence cases away from a male-dominated force is necessary? Okay, it's a, are there any other questions besides that? And one centers around the topic that you handled already, which is around how did you, you talked about evidence. How did you get the evidence and what evidence did you have that helped you win with the union and with law enforcement officers lying and harassing you? Okay, so that was for Heather, that question. Why don't we start with Nanette, if you can provide a short closing thoughts on what you think would be the biggest lever for change that we need, that we can do, and that you would recommend. I feel that the International Association of Chiefs of Police need to play a bigger role in these issues. They need to be much more vocal about officers that inflict domestic violence and sexual assault on their partners as well as the general public. And they need to take more of a leadership role and be more vocal about this. I think that will carry a lot of weight. And I think we need to move past recommending this or that and making things mandated, encouraging mandates, encouraging policies, OIDB policies in police forces across this country. Only 33% of police precincts have a OIDV policy. Now, having said that, you can put anything on paper, but it requires enforcement. So, you know, law enforcement, they're aware of this situation. They're aware of OIDV. OIDV. They just don't speak publicly about it. And so the IACP needs to, to make more noise about this issue. Thank you. Effie? I think that we need to we need to talk about this stuff we need to specifically sexual violence there's not enough talking there's not enough information gathered there's not enough studies done and the longer this stuff stays in the dark the worse it's going to get um so we need to be able to talk about this without fear of reprisal fear, fear of retaliation um we need to be able to connect with other victims other survivors and hear their stories and how they you know, and use their expertise and learn from them and also make women aware of what's possibly out there right now. We need to let women know what's happening. I had no idea that this was what I was going to be faced with. And, you know, I, obviously we need to make public aware, but we also need to have a broader conversation with everybody and, and really look at how we can go about making changes because this stuff is affecting lives. It's negatively affecting lives. It's destroying families, destroying the communities. And so we need to act now and we need to get comfortable with having these uncomfortable conversations to make change. Thank you. And finally, Heather, your closing thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree with Nanette and Effie regarding what they've given forward with regards to change. And with leadership, you know, they've been in the culture for decades. And when they get to the top of that pyramid, they're not going to turn around and point fingers at possibly the people that have been a part of the problem, or perhaps they've been turning a blind eye to this the entire their entire career. So, you know, having outside leadership might be um, the best chance at change because they're not prepared. They didn't do it in the 20, 30, 
35, 40 years of their service. They're not about to rock the boat now and allow that to, to happen. So the leadership is truly what matters. And the leadership needs to be about integrity. It needs to be about we took an oath to protect people. And that involves everyone. And that um, every day when we go to work, it isn't just the people outside that we that we respond to that we're going to make the difference in. It's the people around us. And it's ourselves and the choices that we're making every single day, and who we're going to protect and serve. And that means everyone with that oath. It just doesn't mean we get to choose. Thank you. And so I'm going to actually add uh, my own personal response to address the question that Michelle asked around transformative justice. Um, We talk about that a lot in the podcast, and it is something that is very controversial within the domestic violence movement. It's been used in juvenile justice in rape and sexual assault cases and in violent crimes, but there's hardly been any studies around whether or not it should be uh, used or would work for domestic abuse because of the nature of the uh, power and control dynamic. And um, when you have, it's, it's very similar to what I was sharing earlier about when you have a police officer being able to legally rape a detainee um, if they claim it's consensual, but we all know that there's no such thing as consensual sex when you're in police custody, right? And so similarly for domestic abuse victims, um, there are many of us, myself included, and members of the Engendered Collective who believe that um, there's no such thing as consensual participation in restorative justice practices, especially as an alternative to incarceration uh, when you are in a relationship with the abuser try, with from whom you are seeking to get away. It is potentially a very coercive act just to ask for participation and um, and to center anything else other than the survivor's safety and freedom to then make a decision later if they want to participate in those kinds of things or not is different. But to make it an alternative to incarceration, especially when there are multiple systems involved like criminal court and child welfare and family court, makes it very, um, muddies it and, and makes it um something that myself and my community members um, find is dangerous. So we are happy to share more resources about this. And just, you know, before we close, I wanted to just point out that unfortunately, Angie Rivers was unable to join us today because she became ill, but she graciously, um, very last minute, invited Effie and Heather. Um, so we're very happy that both of you were able to join us, Effie and Heather. Um, just as an FYI for folks who are participating, this is one of five conversations that we've scheduled for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It's um, something that you can join individually, but we would love if you can join more of because the themes are intersecting and it builds upon one another in terms of the knowledge that we're gaining. I would like to thank all of our panelists, Nanette, Effie, and Heather for joining us today. I'd like to thank Michelle for helping to moderate the question and answer. Okay, so thank you all. Have a great afternoon and let's stay connected. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. 
I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.